This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 252nd episode, we have a bunch of dinosaur news, including a name for the Japanese hadrosaur that we've been talking about for months. We also have a new article on T-Rex thermoregulation and some rampaging sauropods. I don't know if I'd put it as rampaging. but I think they're rampaging. Mm, it's up for debate. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have Dinosaur of the Day, Dasentrurus. But before we get into all of that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons who keep the podcast running. And this week, we'd like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, Ricky, Red Sox Rex, Wouter, Shirak, Moss Utah Raptor, Verociraptor, and Switchbreed. And Verociraptor and Switchbreed both just joined. I'm liking all these names. <laughs> they are good. I like it when you can see the first name kind of hidden away in <laughs> a dinosaur name too. That's always fun. So if you want a shout out with your own dinosaur name or your regular name, we're happy to do however you please, then join this growing community on Patreon at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, as promised, we have a name of a new hadrosaur. Maybe not the most exciting news to people who aren't fans of hadrosaurs, but it's a really cool find. So thanks to Wouter for sharing this with us on Discord. And the article was written by Yoshitsugu Kobayashi and others and published in Scientific Reports. And in it, they talk about the Mukawa dinosaur, as we've been calling it for a while. I don't know. It might have even been over a year ago when we first heard about it. But its official name now is Camuisaurus japonicus, or maybe Haponicus. Not really sure exactly. Probably depends on where you're from, how you'd say the species name. And we've been talking about it on and off for quite a while. It was actually found way back in 2003, and it was found in Mukawa. So that's a good reason to call it the Mukawa dinosaur. And then Kamui is actually a deity from Hokkaido, which is where Mukawa is. So its name literally means this local deity plus lizard. So kind of fits. And then Japonicus or Haponicus is after Japan. So it's the Japan Kamui lizard. Kamuisaurus is remarkably complete. That's why we've been talking about it so much for a while, especially for a hadrosaur from Japan. Usually dinosaurs in general from Japan aren't all that complete. And this one's been displayed quite a bit over the last few months. 
it's been shown in pictures kind of laid out and you can really see pretty much the entire skeleton just with a few bits and pieces missing. Cool. I think we've seen pictures of that leading up to this. Yeah, you've talked about it a few times. So there's hundreds of pieces. We're not missing any of the leg or arms when you combine the left and right because they're always identical basically, but just mirror images. So if you combine like the bones that we have from the one leg, it always fills in the gaps that we have for the other leg and arm in this case, which is really cool. And then other than a couple of those little pieces of arm and legs that you can fill in, we're still missing a couple bones, mostly vertebrae, part of the skull, and some claws. So there's it's not 100% complete, but it's really complete. <laughs> it's a relative of Edmontosaurus. They're very similar looking. So if you just kind of picture Edmontosaurus, but with a shorter head and overall kind of a slightly smaller build, you get a pretty good picture of what Komuisaurus looks like. It may have also had a small crest in between its eyes, kind of like Brachylophosaurus. But unfortunately, we can only see sort of near where the crest attached to the rest of the skull because the crest itself is missing as is kind of the closest part. So we don't have a great idea of how big the crest was. But there were some articles talking about how it had this big fancy crest, which is a little bit speculative at this point. Based on the lag spacing, so those like tree ring growth lines that you get in dinosaur bones and any animals that have these periods of growth that kind of slow down, it looks like it was about done growing because those lines are getting really close together. So you can tell that over the years, it's not really getting much bigger. And when it died, this Komuisaurus was about eight meters or 26 feet long, which is smaller than a Montosaurus, but obviously still a big dinosaur. <laughs> And they actually gave two weight estimates, which I think is really interesting. They said that it would be about four tons if it was a biped and about five tons if it was a quadruped. Because it could handle more weight? I think so. Yeah, like the arms would be supporting some of the weight and therefore the legs, even though they weren't big enough, maybe to hold five tons on the legs alone, if they had the arms helping, then maybe it could add that extra ton of bulk. Or maybe they're just thinking that based on the way the mass would shift. So if, if it had like bulkier arms and a bulkier torso, it would shift the center of mass forward and therefore it could have more overall weight that it wouldn't be able to just like physically sort of have around its hips is my guess. I don't know. They didn't really say why they had this. It's the only time they talk about the stance that it had. It's just sort of in there. It's like it's either four or five tons depending on biped or quadruped. Moving on to more description, so I'm not sure. Maybe there's more papers coming out where they'll talk about why they think it was either a biped or a quadruped or why they can't tell. Kamuisaurus was found in a marine sediment, which is unusual for a hadrosaurine, not like the larger crested lambiosaurines, which were apparently constantly getting swept out to sea. We talked about this a little while ago. I think it was with fauna that were up in Alaska, if I remember correctly. They thought that there were much more lambiosaurines, so the big parasaurolophus type ones down by the beach. But then as you got up farther, maybe more towards rivers or just up in the mountains, you saw more of the typical hadrosaur, less exciting head, <laughs> montosaurus type dinosaurs away from the beach. But this one was obviously near the sea because it got swept out to sea. And Gizmodo called it a beach bum, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. And since it got swept out to sea when it got buried, it was buried with a bunch of other marine animals. In fact, the museum where it's on display now is mostly marine stuff because that's what the formation is. 
and Kamuisaurus specifically was found along with some Mosasaur, sea turtle, and ammonite remains. So it was a pretty active marine environment going on there. There's also a pretty cool piece of paleo art showing all of those animals together, the ones that were kind of found in the same general vicinity. But I suspect that if there was a Mosasaur around a Kamuisaurus, we wouldn't have found Kamuisaurus in such good condition because it probably would have bitten some pretty big chunks out of it. And we'd be missing some of those bones that we did find. Maybe it went for the crest. <laughs> the tasty top of the head bony part. <laughs> the delicacy, yeah. <laughs> the closest relatives to Kamuisaurus are, not surprisingly, other Asian Edmontosaurines, which are Leongosaurus and Kerberosaurus, which are geographically the closest Edmontosaur relatives. So it's not too surprising that this one looks like an Edmontosaur. And its closest relatives are things that were nearby that also looked like Edmontosaurus. <laughs> but this is also consistent with Hadrosaurus arriving from Asia from North America, probably via Alaska. And they mentioned that in the article as well. So we're starting to see this idea that even though Tyrannosaurs seem like they might have originated in Asia and made their way over to the US, it looks like Hadrosaurus went the opposite way, likely starting in the US and then migrating over into Asia. When exactly? We still don't really know. And Kamuisaurus is stored at the Hobetsu Museum in Mukawa, Hokkaido, Japan, which is very near where it was found. It's on the southern coast of Hokkaido, about 50 miles southeast of Sapporo. And Mukawa has less than 10,000 people in population, but a pretty good looking dinosaur museum, or I should say natural history museum, since a lot of it's marine reptiles. So if you're in that area, it would be cool to see. I think they might have Kamuisaurus on display. I'm not really sure. It was mounted and shown at, at least a replica of it was, at the Dinosaur Expo 2019 in Tokyo. And I think it might be back at the Hobetsu Museum now. I'm not really sure, but since it's so complete, it would make sense to put it on display. So if you're in Japan and you're a fan of hadrosaurs, there's now a pretty exciting hadrosaur from your country. I'm not sure how large this group of people is because most people are more excited about tyrannosaurs and sauropods and things. But there's got to be somebody who's really pumped about this. I think it's pretty cool. There's probably a lot of people. There's been a lot of media coverage. It's true. The completeness of the find alone is worth being excited about, I think. Next up, thanks to Chris and Morgan for sharing this one with us. There's an article by Casey Holliday published in the Anatomical Record and it's also accompanied by some really great new paleo art by Brian Ng. And in it, you see dinosaurs as if they were thermally imaged. So taking one of those infrared cameras and taking pictures of dinosaurs, but it's all drawn by Brian. It's really great. This article by Holiday et al. is all about a new feature that they discovered on the skull roof of many archosaurs. In other words, dinosaurs, birds, and alligators. And specifically, they were looking at this area that they call the dorsotemporal fossa. And that spot is basically the area right in between the eyes of an alligator. It's actually slightly behind, but if you think about the top of an alligator's head, it kind of has the eyes sticking out of the top of the head. <laughs> it's kind of funny looking because, you know, when they're below the water, they can just peek their eyes up in a super creepy, scary way. But in that, there's a little bit of their head that gets out of the water too, and that's the spot where they were researching. So what they found was that there's kind of this little shelf there, and previously it's been assumed that 
that area was a muscle attachment point for the jaw muscles because there's an area right behind it which we know is a muscle attachment point and this sort of has a muscle attachment shape to it. Sometimes these broad areas where bones flare out are good for attaching muscles. But these researchers looked at alligators because they have a pretty good dorsotemporal fossa <laughs> and what they found was that there weren't muscles attached there. Instead what it was is a whole bunch of blood vessels on the top of their heads that go down to the eyes, brain, and spinal cord. And there's also a really great video by Brian Ng explaining this to go along with his paleo art. So what they describe is this method that alligators have for regulating their body temperature by pumping blood to this little spot on their head in between their eyes. And in order to test this, what the researchers did is they went out into like an alligator farm. <laughs> if you've ever seen these things, they're pretty popular in Florida. And they pointed thermal cameras at alligators at different times of day to see what that part of their head looked like. And what they found was that in the morning and when they were trying to warm up, they pumped blood to that area in their head to try to warm up. And so you see these little bright spots on the infrared cameras or in Brian Ng's version in an infrared drawing on the top of an alligator's head. So it's both a really useful way to warm up and cool down. And T-Rex had a very large dorsotemporal fossa on the top of its head, much larger than average for an archosaur. So we think that T-Rex must have been using this to really cool down or warm up. Maybe it's because it had a large brain and large eyes, and those created a lot of heat that needed to be dissipated or in the morning needed to be warmed up extra, and therefore you'd want to get the blood moving and warming up to get the brain functioning <laughs> fully. I don't know, but they show some really good evidence in this article that alligators use this spot on their head to warm up and get their blood pumping. <laughs> and tyrannosaurs have a very similar aspect on their head. So it's really cool. You should definitely check out Brian's blog post on this so you can see this picture. It's really great. It shows a Displetosaurus guarding a killed Ceratopsian from some Dinosuchus. So the Dinosuchus have these bright spots on the top of their head and so does the Tyrannosaur, although the Tyrannosaur is largely brighter in general because we think that they were a little warmer bodied than the crocodilian type animals. But the coolest thing to me about it is that the Ceratopsian that it's guarding, you don't even really notice because it's room temperature because it's dead. So it's sort of blended into the background and you only notice it because it's blocking part of the Displetosaurus. So really cool picture, a really cool paper. It shows that there was something basically hiding in plain sight all this time that we just assumed was a muscle attachment point. But it turns out to be this new function that no one had thought of before. There's a new paper that came out in Paleo Archive Papers about a marine turtle that got trampled by a sauropod in what's now Switzerland. Sounds like a rampage. No, it's trampled. <laughs> they think that the turtle was already dead and then got stepped on. Mm -hmm. So not a rampage, probably. Typical sauropod sympathizers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. This paper was authored by Christian Puntaner and others, and it happened in the Jurassic. A sauropod stepped on a Plesiochelis biglari. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Don't know turtles too well, but that's an extinct sea turtle. And then crushed it. 
And it's not the first time we've talked about sauropods crushing turtles. Actually, sauropod vertebrate picture of the week talked about this, a sauropods stomping turtles and how this isn't depicted enough in paleo art. Mm-hmm. I wonder why it isn't depicted in paleo art. Is it a conspiracy? I don't think it's a conspiracy, Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> so in this case, the turtle was in a tidal flat environment and the shell was found under a sauropod trackway. It's possible that the turtle died at sea and then was washed up on shore, but it's also possible the fossil was crushed by the weight of the rocks above it over the millions of years that it was buried. But the authors think it's more likely that the turtle crawled across this tidal flat and then was stranded and died. Then the sauropod came by. Maybe it was looking for an easier way to walk through the area rather than go through a forest, and then it stomped on the turtle. So most likely, Garrett, the turtle was already dead, and this is based on characteristics of the shell, though the authors say that there is no definitive evidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, apparently there's cases of modern elephants crushing turtles, so this idea of a very large animal crushing a smaller one is not unheard of. I was trying to get to that sweet turtle goop, squish it, and then slurp it up. I don't think that's what elephants go for. Or sauropods, even. At least not on purpose. They, sauropods are so big, they probably don't even see the turtles. That's possible. Yeah. But it could be tasty. Could be. You get tired of eating leaves all the time. You see a turtle stranded. Right, opportunistic eating. And we talked about before, too, if the sauropods have to bulk up really fast, and if they want more protein. Mm-hmm. Find a turtle. I don't think it's on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it happened. Maybe sauropods have eaten turtles at some point, but I don't think in most cases it was on purpose. I think their reputation of being a gentle giant is at stake. <laughs> they could still be gentle giants, just not if they can't see you. Or just not so gentle to turtles. <laughs> I guess so. Anyway... Uh, For people who might be keeping taps, the Dinosaurs of Utah PDF has been updated and now includes more species of dinosaurs. They now have over 115. And the graphic covers the age of the dinosaurs, the formations they were found, and it has images and names of dinosaurs. And we'll post a link so you can see for yourself. It's a pretty cool one. I think that was one Jim Kirkland worked on. Mm -hmm. We did post something about dinosaurs being found in Wyoming, and he posted about how there's more dinosaurs in Utah. Yeah. <laughs> He's a big Utah supporter. Yeah. Being well, the state paleontologist and all. Makes sense. There are a lot of good dinosaurs that come out of Utah. True. But speaking of places outside of Utah, if you're looking for some dinosaur places to visit, the travel has a list of 10, and they include Museum of the Rockies in Montana, the Royal Tyrrell, American Museum of Natural History, the Field Museum, the Fuwiang National Park in Thailand, and more, including places to see Jurassic Park and Jurassic World dinosaurs and sites. And speaking of Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, some of those movies' dinosaur skeletons and costumes are being auctioned off, and the auction's going to be Monday, September 30th, and Tuesday, October 1st at the Prop Store Entertainment Memorabilia Live Auction, and that's in London. They're estimating items will go for between 2,000 to 30,000 pounds, and they include a T-Rex skull from Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, a dinosaur handler costume from Jurassic Park, and John Hammond's costume from Jurassic Park. Cool. Yeah, and there's going to be also a free public preview exhibit of the items that are up from auction between September 18th to October 1st at the BFI IMAX. And then the auction will be live streamed for those who may want to watch but aren't in London. 
That sounds really fun. I would definitely try to go visit and see the stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd want to actually bid on anything. <laughs> it's a bit pricey for us, I think. But... Yeah, the lower end of 2,000 pounds. That's right. like 3,000 bucks or something. It's a lot. Usually when we talk about thousands of pounds with dinosaurs, we're talking about weight. And we're talking about thousands of pounds of currency. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Is that not a good joke? I'd say that was like a dad joke. <laughs> yeah, oops. You're not sorry. <laughs> oh, also in London, the Crystal Palace dinosaurs had an open day on September 15th, and visitors got to go on tours of islands where the dinosaur sculptures reside, and they had talks and activities. The tours were free, but you did have to book in advance, and hopefully they do more of these things in the future. Magic Leap recently launched a dinosaur kit, and that's an app that lets you assemble dinosaur skeletons from scattered bones. There's over 180 bones in each skeleton. Wow. Yeah, you can choose to build a Velociraptor or Protoceratops, and then that'll help you learn their anatomy. It was part of this independent creator program where Magic Leap got 6,500 ideas from people, and then they chose to develop a few projects. I'm glad they chose a dinosaur one. Jacob Kissio created Dinosaur Kit, and he's worked on making games such as Bulletstorm, Gears of War, Judgment, and The Witcher 3, and he built Dinosaur Kit in Unity. Cool. Yeah, Magic Leap is one of those augmented reality goggle slash glasses things, which looks really fun. I'd like to assemble a dinosaur in augmented reality. Well, you can. If I had Magic Leap. Oh, I see. <laughs> I think those goggles are still thousands of dollars, so... Maybe someday. Last, there's a photo going viral of a maid of honor wearing an inflatable T-Rex costume after the bride, who's the maid of honor's sister, told her she could wear anything. Mm. <laughs> so apparently the maid of honor did ask her sister first. Her sister said yes. And it was a, quote, big game of chicken to see if either of them would back down on the day. <laughs> and then she did walk down the aisle in the dinosaur costume. But everybody was aware. Everybody liked it. <laughs> Upstage in the bride. In a different way. It'd be good if the bride then also got a giant dinosaur inflatable costume. <laughs> for the reception or something. Or for the ceremony. Mm. Hard to say your vows in that costume. True. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. 
head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Dacentrurus, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602. So thanks. It was a stegosaur that lived in the Jurassic and what is now England. Not too much is known about its appearance, but Dacentrurus was robust and it was quadrupedal and herbivorous and it had plates and spikes. There's some estimates that it was as large as 33 feet or 10 meters long and weighed up to 5 tons. Dacentrurus had a wide pelvis. 4.9 feet or one and a half meters wide, which was a very broad gut for a stegosaur. Yeah, that is a wide animal. It had short hind limbs, but long forelimbs and similar proportions as stegosaurus, except the way the plates and the spikes looked was different. So it probably had two rows of small plates on the neck and two rows of longer spikes on the tail. The holotype of Dacentrurus has a small asymmetrical neck plate. Some people also think it had a shoulder spike, but that's not clear. Originally, Dacentrurus was called Omosaurus, but then it turned out the name Omosaurus was already used for a phytosaur, so it was renamed to Dacentrurus in 1902. Joseph Lady had named the phytosaur Omosaurus perplexus back in 1856, but if you listen to episode 250 about the bone wars, you know that a lot of people didn't pay attention to Joseph Lady. (laughs) Yeah, or what names were already occupied just in general. That too. All about cranking out new names. Yes. In 1874, James Shopwin from the Swindon Brick and Tile Company told Richard Owen about fossils in the Swindon Great Quarry. Owen sent William Davies to excavate the specimen, which was in clay, and while trying to lift the clay piece, it crumbled. Eventually, the fossils made their way to London, three tons in total, and they were prepared by Caleb Barlow. Omosaurus armatus was named in 1875, and that's based on a skeleton found in the Kimmeridge clay, and it was described by Owen in 1875. The genus name means upper arm and refers to its robust humerus, and the species name means armed in Latin, and that refers to a large spike that Owen thought was on the upper arm. The holotype included a pelvis, dorsal vertebrae, sacrals and caudal vertebrae, a right femur, left forelimb, partial fibula, partial tibia, right neck plate, and left tail spike. Many other species were named, but are no longer considered valid, and that happens a lot with dinosaurs named in the 1800s. Other species that were named and no longer considered valid included Omosaurus hastiger, named by Owen, and that means spike bearer or lance wielder, and that's because Owen thought that there were spikes on the wrist. That'd be cool. Yeah. I guess that's kind of like a guanodon, except that it's on the hand. Right, the thumb spike. There's also Omosaurus durobrevensis, named by John Hulk in 1887, but was renamed as Lexovisaurus in 1956, Omosaurus philipsi, named by Harry Seeley in 1893 based on a femur, Omosaurus vetustus, named in 1910 by Frederick von Huhn based on a femur, and the name means ancient one, 
but now that dinosaur is known as Eplophysis. Omosaurus linearii, named in 1911 by Franz Nolfsche, based on a partial skeleton found in 1899 in Normandy, France, but that specimen was destroyed in 1944 during the Allied bombing of Carn. Hopefully I pronounced that French city right. But like I said, it was renamed to Dacentrurus in 1902, and now only the type species Dacentrurus armatus is valid. Used to be Omasaurus armatus? Yes. And the name Dacentrurus means tail full of points. So it switched from <laughs> the arms having spikes to the tails having spikes mm-hmm. in the name? That's kind of fun. Oh, yes. And it was Frederick Augustus Lucas who renamed Omasaurus armatus as Dacentrurus armatus in 1902. In 1915, Edwin Hennig renamed most of the Omasaurus species to Dacentrurus, but many researchers still use the name Omasaurus until the 1950s. Dacentrurus was the first stegosaur discovered. It was discovered before Stegosaurus, and it's one of the best-known stegosaurs from Europe. It's been found in England, France, Portugal, and Spain. We're lucky that they're not called Dacentrurusaurs instead of Stegosaurus, because that's a lot harder to say. True. If it became as famous as Stegosaurus, though, it might be easy to say. Be used to it. Maybe, yeah. So many stegosaur discoveries have been referred to Dacentrurus, as well as eggs that were found in Portugal. Peter Galton in the 1980s referred all stegosaur fossils from late Jurassic deposits in Western Europe to Dacentrurus, but in 2008, Susanna Maidman limited Dacentrurus armatus material to the holotype and found most named species to be Nomina dubia. In other words, not valid. Mm-hmm. In 2013, Alberto Cobos and Francisco Gasco described fossils found in Spain as Dacentrurus armatus. They found two cervical vertebrae, one dorsal vertebra, and one caudal vertebra from one individual. And this find shows intraspecies variability of Dacentrurus. Unless somebody decides it's a different genus later. Right. (laughs) Or a different species. True. But if it is intraspecies variability, this could be because of ontogeny or sexual dimorphism or even individual pathologies. Oof. And our fun fact of the day is all about inner ears, specifically that the inner ear orientation of Cetacosaurus changed as it grew up. This is according to a new article by Claire Bullard et al. in Pure J. And as a quick bonus fact, I need to do a little bit of background on what an inner ear is. So our inner ear is very similar to a dinosaur's inner ear. Obviously, they have very different outer ears, so that's the part uh, that sticks out of the side of our head that we can get pierced, but that's just sort of a weak amplifier for our hearing. I've talked to how owls have like these facial discs that work kind of like outer ears to funnel sound towards their actual inner ears. Yep, (laughs) owls are weird. They are. I mean, our ears are pretty weird too, I think most animals would think, but the real hearing happens in the middle and the inner ear. So the outer ear is that, you know, cartilage thing on the side of the head. Then the ear canal leads to the eardrum or tympanic membrane. Some animals actually just have a tympanic membrane on the side of their head. I think frogs have that. So it's like they don't have an outer ear or an ear canal. They just have the eardrum right on the side of their head. So it's obviously a little bit tougher than our eardrum, but that's the part that's really important. And then the eardrum connects to the middle ear. The middle ear is where the tiny bones are that connect the eardrum to the inner ear, which is why it's the middle ear. It's in between the outer and the inner. And you might know there's always this piece of trivia, what's the smallest bone in the body? It's one of those little tiny bones in the middle ear that connects the eardrum to the inner ear. 
because it's all it gets all bony <laughs> when you get in there. It's not just cartilage anymore. And the inner ear itself is also surrounded by bone, which is why we can find them fossilized. We find endocasts of them, or you can just do a CT scan of a skull and you can see that hollow cavity where the inner ear was. And it's all, the shape is still there because there's literally this sort of mined out tunnel <laughs> network of where the inner ear was inside the skull. So that inner ear is really important because that's the actual sensory part of the ear. That's where the signal of the sound, which hits the eardrum, gets translated into sound. And it does that by being full of fluid with little tiny hairs in it, and then the hairs detect motion, they're connected to nerves, and that goes straight to the brain. It's sort of a fluid mechanics thing. It's a process of turning the sound around you, which is waves moving through air, into the eardrum, which turns it into a solid motion through those little tiny bones. And then it goes into a liquid, <laughs> and then back into the hairs. So it's, it's pretty complicated, obviously. And that might be why it's kind of similar between us and dinosaurs, because once this thing evolved, it wasn't going to change too much because it's everything has to kind of line right for it to work. So in the inner ear, there's two main parts. You've got the cochlea. That's the part that the eardrum is connected to, and that's the part that helps you hear. That's where all the, the hearing hairs are and everything. And then there are the semicircular canals. And that's usually what we're talking about when we're talking about dinosaur head orientation, or if we're talking about how well adapted they are at moving quickly. So these semicircular canals are literally big loops of fluid that stick out inside the head in different directions. It's almost like a gyroscope that's built into the middle of your head. And then you have two of them, one on each side. So there are three semicircular canals, three in each inner ear. And that's so that your brain can figure out your head moving in three different directions all at once, just like a gyroscope. There's one that's called the lateral semicircular canal. And that's the one that's sort of in the turning your head orientation. And then there's one that's angled up and there's one that's angled down, and they're 90 degrees to each other, which is really important so that they can get very different signals. These semicircular canals, they're full of little sensory hairs so that when your head turns and the fluid moves a little bit, the hairs can detect it and it can tell your brain, uh-oh, you're turning. <laughs> because sometimes it surprises you and it's good to find out. Or if you're turning your head quickly, it's good to stay oriented in your surroundings to know how much you turned relative to the rest of the body or relative to which way you were facing before. So back to Cetacosaurus. Researchers found that this angle of the lateral canal changed as it grew up, so that it's an angle between the palate they used, so the roof of its mouth, and this lateral canal in its inner ear. So that's actually a hollow space in its skull is changing orientation as it grows, which is a pretty crazy thing to change shape. It's like the actual mined-out cavity inside the bone in the skull is changing shape as it grows. So as a hatchling, there was a really large angle, a relatively large angle, of 38 degrees. And they think it was a larger angle because it was on four legs with its mouth facing the ground, so its head is kind of angled downward. And they think that that lateral canal was kind of parallel to the earth, which is still a little bit controversial, but it does seem that most people are sort of heading down that line of thinking. Then as a juvenile, that angle between the palate and the lateral canal goes down to 25 degrees. So in this case, they're depicting it as on two legs, 
but its head still isn't quite all the way upright. Its back is kind of parallel to the ground along with its neck. So it's sort of like a pseudo-Sukian or something with its hands held off the ground. It's still sort of low. But then as an adult, that angles all the way down to 15 degrees and they depict it as fully bipedal with its head raised up. And so its mouth is just slightly more angled down than that semicircular canal. So at rest, they think it's more upright than sort of crawling around. So it's a pretty interesting article. I hadn't ever seen a study showing that the semicircular canals can actually change shape within the skull and change orientation as an animal grows up. But it's definitely really interesting to see that these major changes to brain shape can occur in animals. There were other changes they noticed too in the Cetacosaurus brain. It's still weird though, because if you think about a human brain, ours stays pretty much the same shape the whole time we grow up. It doesn't make these big changes in direction and <laughs> remodels as we grow up. Like babies don't have a different inner ear than adults. It's pretty crazy. Is that surprising though? You find out all kinds of crazy stuff all the time. It's true. <laughs> And on that note, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And consider joining our growing community on Patreon, patreon.com slash I Know Dino, especially before SVP. Thanks again, and until next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.